Hey, this is Leo Batari, participating in Ryan Folan's World of Speakers, talking about the power of peers. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. And welcome once again to the world of podcast speakers, where we talk with speakers who literally talk around the world. We get to know who they are and what their story is. We get to know what their insights and tricks and tips are from a public speaking slash professional speaking standpoint. And then we try to find out how they've been able to be successful at monetizing their speaking. Today, I'm super excited because Mr. Leo, I met in Portugal of all places, and we were both flown out to speak at the 30th anniversary of the Anja, the 30, what was it? Uh, it's the government supported, basically, system of entrepreneurship, getting kids at an early age. And we had a great time out there. And since then, we've become buddies. He's part of my inside crew. And of course, he's one of the first people I think of when I think to people who I admire that are successful out there speaking, not only just speaking to speak his mind, but speaking and actually getting a little cashola, if not medium cashola, if not a lot of cashola. So, Mr. Leo, welcome to the show, sir. Ryan, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. It is, right? It always is. I mean, I think that of uh, certain people that you talk to, it's always sort of nice. And we met in a foreign country and we found out that we actually lived very close to each other. And uh, since then, I'm. it's been fun to see your path and your explosion with this year of the peer. You've made me think twice, second, three times about the people that I hang out with. <laughs> so uh, you're like this little person on my shoulder that asks me every time I meet somebody, is this someone that you want into your peer group? <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's have everybody else meet you a little bit. I mean, I know your story pretty well, but, but where did it all start from you? Uh, because I know you were... You weren't always doing what you're doing now. It kind of was a nice organic flow. No. In fact, um, you know, I started really after graduating from college, really working in politics. You know, everything from local to presidential politics where I was involved, um, you know, with Paul Songus's U.S. Senate campaign in Massachusetts and years later in his um, run for president in 92. And but but in there. Um, while I was working on political campaigns, I kind of discovered that a lot of the people that I really respected had real jobs in the private sector <laughs> also, in addition to working 100 hours a week in a campaign and making no money. So I thought, huh. So anyway, very fortunately, because I was able to meet a lot of really great people there, I was able to get a position where I was writing uh, speeches for the CEO of the Stop and Shop Company, which was a diversified retail company at the time. Fortune 500, about $4 billion back in the you know, mid-1980s, which was a you know, pretty good size, you know, certainly for back then. But the unique thing about that job was that, on one hand, I was writing speeches for the CEO and constantly looking at the business at the 30,000-foot level. Another part of my job was to write community profiles for when they were going to enter new markets. So as I did that, I was kind of this guy that, on one hand, was looking at the business in a really big way, and on the other hand, was probably the only person at headquarters who spent, or I would say the, the person at headquarters who spent the most time with real employees and real customers mm. on the front line. You know, we used to remind ourselves that there are no cash registers in headquarters, you know. And so that combination of trying to think about the business in a big way and trying to be 
constantly in touch with what's really going on is what I've tried to bring to every job I've had since. And so I started there, of course, in corporate communications. And for about 30 years after that, on the agency and client sides of the business, you know, I work and, and every time, you know, I always tried to bring that element into my work and really surround myself with the kind of people that I needed that could inform me in each of those you know, particular areas um, that I had to ever write about or, or talk about. And so I was very fortunate. I worked at places like Mullen, it's called Mullen Low today, um, and Hill and Knowlton, but I also owned my own firm for five years. And while I was doing that, I actually joined a group called the WorldCom Public Relations Group. And it's basically a consortium of agencies from around the world. And what it does is it largely gives agencies who, in my case, I was based in Jacksonville, Florida, it gives me essentially best-in-class offices all over the country and around the world who I can partner with. So if I have a company, a client that had a local need somewhere, I had a partner that I felt was reliable and trustworthy. And we used to meet uh, twice a year. And while I joined it in many respects for marketing reasons, what I really got out of it was being around other agency principals and learning from them about how to run and grow you know, the business. And it was probably my first real, you know, I think considered, you know, experience with a, a peer group and really saw the value of that. Kind of along the way, I decided that um, going to graduate school would be really important. So uh, I did that and I learned a tremendous amount. I went to Seton Hall University, got a Master of Arts in Strategic Communication and Leadership. And it was there because today, whether it's online or in classroom, when you have mid to senior level executives as students, any professor would be out of their mind to think that they're just going to stand in front of the class and lecture at these students and then just let them go away. You've got such rich, such a rich collection of experiences in that room that if you're actually doing your job right as an instructor, you're going to get them to learn more from one another than they ever will, even from you, the material. And so... As a student, I experienced that. Later, Seton Hall was kind enough to invite me to teach in their program. I've been an adjunct now for 10 years. And as I was pursuing that, this idea of working for Vistage came. Uh, there was an opening there, and Vistage, of course, assembles and facilitates peer advisory groups for mid to senior level executives, largely actually CEO groups. And they do it here in the U.S. and around the world. So on one hand, on the academic side, I'm working and seeing the power of students helping and working and learning from one another. And then I saw the same thing at work uh, in the private sector. And even though I was at Vistage largely doing corporate communications, that later shifted to directing a thought leadership around this idea of who you surround yourself with matters. That we know that these peer groups work really well, but we didn't always have the ability to articulate how or why, which is why in 2016, uh, along with Leon Shapiro, we co-authored a book called The Power of Peers, where we explored not just vistage groups, but groups all over the country and all over the world in terms of how they work. And what we discovered was not only that um, a little bit of how these groups work, but in many respects, successful peer groups and teams share a lot of common characteristics in terms of what makes them successful. So with that, that kind of brings us to a bit of the present um, you had mentioned the year of the peer. Yes. Hashtag year of the peer. Hashtag year of the peer. <laughs> Hashtag year of the peer. And, uh, you know, as part of that, you know, I'm doing CEO workshops and, and speaking and keynotes, you know, all over the country. I actually did a workshop. You mentioned Portugal. I was just there a few weeks ago and did a workshop there. And it was just so much fun. I mean, you know, 
being there, you know, what that's like and what the energy in that building is at Ange is all yeah, about. And even the facility is so crazy. It's, it's this multi-level complex where you have crazy offices down below, mid-level, you have these crazy balconies. Up top, you have these different departments and rooms, and they have like young entrepreneurs all together, middle school-aged entrepreneurs all together, high school-aged together, and then grown-ups. And it's like this it's like a little university academy of entrepreneurs at every level. Yeah, and it's on the river on right. top of that. So it's like pretty. People will sit out in the grass and just kind of hang out and think about, you know, what it is they're um, trying to create, you know. But um, Yeah, and you've got the, the, the fresh water that meets the salt water. And it's almost yeah. an actual, when I think about it, it's like it's a perfect spot for you because when you're when you were starting off and you're writing speeches, you're looking at the macro and then you're into the micro. You're here in academia, like dealing with students before they get out in the real world and then dealing with CEOs who were students at one point. I like see you as this junction or the delta between the fresh water as it's coming and the salt water and just kind of like stops and you just navigate right there in the middle. You know, it is kind of funny how you can be in different areas like that and you, and you see what's in common and you start taking note of that. And I think that's been you know really exciting. So of course, part of this year with the peer also is that, you know, I've got this podcast series where I committed to doing 50 interviews with, um, you know, CEOs, with scholars, with uh, artists, you know, people from all various walks of life who are really great at what they do. And we talk about the people who helped, you know, get them there. They, we talk about the people who they surround themselves with today, who, and to a person, there isn't one person yet who I've talked to who said to me, I've got where I am completely on my own. Never had any help from anyone. Never. That that doesn't happen. You know, that isn't how we are successful. And the better we are at surrounding ourselves with really good people that can, you know, encourage us, that can provide us advice, that can hold us accountable for things that we say we want to do for ourselves and our lives. There's really nothing like it. And when we can give that to others as well as receive it from others, you know, it's it's just incredibly powerful. One of the actually interviews I did recently was with uh, Angela Myers, and Angela Myers founded an organization called Choose to Matter. And you know, her premise basically is that if we believe we matter, it it can fundamentally change the way we do everything, the way we think about ourselves, the way we engage others, and that me showing up in whatever way in whatever forum, with my A-game matters. And when I don't show up with my A-game, <laughs> that can matter too, often you know, in a, in a negative way. And it, it just really, I think, is very powerful. And it's kind of fundamental in many respects to this whole idea of the power of peers, the five factors that we talk about you know, in the book, and that if we decide and we accept the responsibility for the gifts that we have, and you know, we decide that... Um, what we should do is not be humble about it, but we should actually be giving about it and um, makes a big difference. And I think her work has really been fascinating. We've been talking a lot lately and, um, and that's just one of the incredible guests. We've had the chief human resources officer for LinkedIn. We've had the publisher of Forbes. We've had Jim Cousins, who's wrote, who wrote along with Barry Posner, the most successful leadership books probably of all time in terms of the leadership challenge. And, um, so learning from them and kind of surrounding myself with them for this year <laughs> has been pretty powerful and pretty exciting. And um, so with all that, between the workshops, the, the keynotes, the podcasts, and 
really what I'm doing with Everywhere I Go. The idea now is to put this together for a book that I'm going to be releasing in um, spring of 2018, which will essentially chronicle 12 kind of timeless takeaways from the year of the peer that we can take for ourselves in, in our personal life and in our professional life and um, use those takeaways that I think were common among so many of the experiences that I had and apply them to our own lives. Very commendable, sir. And and I'm a big fan of your podcast. Actually, just the, the last one I listened to was with Miguel when you were yeah. at Ange in Portugal and you're on different floors and that was pretty funny. But uh, no, I, anybody who is listening to this should also check out The Year of the Peer. And Leo, where do they find the podcast? What's the best place to point them for that? Well, they can, they can certainly go to leobatari.com. Um, they can also go to C-Suite Radio. They'll find Year of the Peer podcast on C-Suite Radio. We're, we're part of that. Very excited to be part of that um, family. But of course, you can go to wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, um, you know, any host of other platforms. You can go to YouTube and see them. What we do is record them on video and audio. And there's a lot of folks that really enjoy kind of seeing the video because you can really see a lot of the reactions and, and just kind of watch the conversation as well as listen to it. And, you know, that's kind of fun too. So, yeah. so it's, um, so yeah, invite people to, and they can of course subscribe uh, to it as well. They can also just go to Google and type in hashtag year of the peer. Right. So it's interesting that one of the last uh, sort of concepts that you're talking about is this, this lady who was saying you have to believe in yourself and that you do matter in order to really succeed. And on the other hand, you're talking about this group think or this group mentality where we're all better together. And it almost seems like that junction again between the two different poles and where they meet in the middle, the salt water meeting the fresh water, in that when you talk about speaking and public speaking and or professional speaking, there's this individuality, but there's also this collective support and power. Like I think that in a general sense, some people maybe when they're getting into becoming a professional speaker. By that, I mean trying to get paid for their speaking and for the information that they're sharing. I can sense that there's almost this I am an island concept, right? It's me. I don't really want to necessarily reach out, but there's so much power and I found so much value in connecting with other speakers, supporting them, uh, you know, helping give them opportunity, doing what I can do to help everybody else. And that's just, that just comes back tenfold. So I wonder if you can speak a moment on the challenges between this mentality of an individual and sort of I'm that person speaking versus this sort of group peer mentality that kind of is counterintuitive if everybody's fighting for those same keynotes and those same presentations. What is the relationship there? Yeah. So when you think about this idea of I matter, if you finish the sentence, what you want to say is I matter to others. And so th this idea now that if I'm going to speak in front of a group, anything I can possibly do to learn as much about that audience you know, as possible, talk with the people who are organizing the event, have them be really clear about what the outcomes and what the expectations are, that we are going to work together and learn together and uh, make sure that you know, I can deliver the content in a manner that is most beneficial and most useful to that group. I think that that you know, is fundamentally where this starts to come together in terms of the fact that I believe people depend on me to present the information in a way 
it's both informative and, as I've learned quite a bit, and we'll talk about this later, there, there has to be really a great entertainment you know, portion of this too, a great way to involve your audience, the kinds of things that, that really get them to be part of it. So it isn't just you alone in the front of the room. What you want to try to do is work at being from my presentation or, or my keynote or my workshop to our experience. Mm. And if I can do that you know, by the end, that's really kind of where you, you have people believing and leaving that a, a talk and, and feeling that they got value from it. I like that. That's a great concept. I was just talking with John Bates, and he has a uh, similar concept. And he talks, you're talking about entertainment. He's talking about more of a performance. And it's not in the showboaty performance. Right. But it's that the responsibility of a speaker is not the message that you're sharing. It's how well that message is received. And it's a total paradigm shift if you're thinking, this is the information that I'm presenting. My job is to just put it out there. Sometimes we forget that it's really our responsibility that the audience understands whatever message it is. And it's got to be catered and tailored to that audience. So I'm going to tell you a, a very brief story, um, a, a traumatic one in many respects from, from junior high school that is informed okay. that is informed this idea that I believe that the responsibility of a message being communicated effectively and being received as attended is the responsibility of the sender, not the receiver. Okay. And and part of what where that comes from. So I was in junior high school. It was the last meet of the year, and I was asked to fill in on the relay team. I was the third leg of the relay. I had practiced it before, so it was fun in terms of being prepared to do it. We were undefeated. Um, all we had to do was win this race. We had the fastest kid in the city running the final legs. All I had to do was kind of do my job, give it to him, and it was done deal. Sure enough, um, comes to me. I do what I'm supposed to do. I got to hand him the baton. Baton hits the ground. Um, game over. We lose and all that. And at the end, the coach let me know in no uncertain terms that that was my fault that that happened. That you never let go of the baton until you know that the receiver has grasped it. Mm. And the only fortunate thing that take away <laughs> from that is that I have, you know, kind of applied that to communication and said to myself, I want to make sure that before I walk away, before I leave a point, before I do anything like that, that I'm, I'm clear that the audience has that baton before I let it go. And I, I think fundamentally, it's if a speaker writer, whatever, can accept that responsibility, it can be very powerful and a real game changer for how people communicate. That's it. It's called the, uh, let's see, let's combine it with your last name. <laughs> so it can be, let's, let's do, uh, let's see, Batari Baton Theory. The Batari Baton Theory. Yeah, the Batari Baton Theory has just been launched go. right now. I love that. Right. Actually, I kind of got some goosebumps when you told that. And somebody told me that you get goosebumps when you sort of relive a moment in your past, like it's kind of a weird time trip. And I ran yeah. track <laughs> in middle school. Okay. Like you brought sure. back these crazy memories and I had such, uh, there was so much anxiety around passing the baton. Like it just, it literally brought back these goosebumps just made me figure that out. And it was enough anxiety for me that in high school, I didn't run track. I just did pole vault and I just had one big baton that I was in charge of the entire time and <laughs> just own the responsibility for it. But what a great analogy of a speaker handing off that baton to the audience, but not letting go until you are sure that the audience has a hold of it. You know, and, and, and a second 
lesson that I always found really valuable, completely different context, was if in when the speech that Lincoln gave uh, at Gettysburg, most people may or may not know that Lincoln was not the featured speaker that day for that event. It was Edward Everett, who I think he was a former Secretary of State, I believe he was Governor of Massachusetts, um, very um, lauded orator back in those days where you know people would give two and three hour speeches, and that's kind of what they did. Yeah, you know, and I think oftentimes we as writers, communicators, can start falling in love with the sound of our own voice and the <laughs> and 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 lose the the essence of communication. And what happened that day, of course, was Edward Everett gave, and if you read his speech, it's magnificent. I mean, it's beautiful. However, the speech that was remembered that day was Lincoln's, and Edward Everett actually wrote to Lincoln when it was done and said, "You communicated in two minutes what it took me two hours to do." Wow. And he said, and your, yours will be the speech that will be remembered from that day. And of course, you know, wise as he was about public speaking, there's hardly too many speeches out there that we, you know, that have stood the test of time uh, as being better examples than the Gettysburg Address. So pretty cool stuff when we really start thinking about our audience and really think about communicating and think about the audience as primary and not think about, you know, our own egos and sound of our voice and all of that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very true. And sometimes culturally, the longer you speak, the more weight what you say is held. And that's what I try to fight with my whole three on three theory is that for me, I believe the more you talk, the less people listen. And the less you talk, the more people ask questions. And that questions is what drives the conversation, even if it's like a one to many situation. And I think the challenge comes though, when you have a 30 minute or a 45 minute keynote slot that you have to quote unquote fill. And then really the question is, how can I use that time to create the most value for the audience that I know that they're going to leave with to pass that baton according to the baton theory that we have now? Yeah, there we go. So I mean, these are, these are great tips and I want to continue on for a little bit of your best and brightest tips. You've got the, the Batari baton theory is number one. The Lincoln length theory is number two. <laughs> if you can create a message in two minutes that would take you two hours, you need to apply the Lincoln length theory. What are some of these other just crucial elements? And I think some of our listeners are either beginning, some of them might be in the middle stages, and some of them might already be well advanced as a speaker. My favorite tips are the ones that apply to them all because John Bates, uh, fresh in my mind, because he was, uh, we were just talking a while ago. He talks about having this beginner mentality where however professional or advanced you are, having this beginner mentality will really take you to that next level because sometimes we get advanced, we forget about those basics. So what are some more of the crucial basics that you find that you leverage all the time and continue to work on? So I would say one of them is to get to whatever. So if I'm speaking at an event and not only, of course, do I want to make sure I'm there early and do my own setup and all that kind of stuff, but I want to get that done as quickly as possible so that I can go out into where people are getting ready to sit down and talk and introduce myself and get to know some of the, the audience members. Oftentimes, and I'll ask questions, and oftentimes I will either learn some things that I'll incorporate right into the, the presentation that I'm making. It actually creates a good comfort level with me because I start building a rapport with the audience. They start getting to know you know, who I am beyond just being kind of removed in that way, at least initially when you're on stage or something and they're, you know, sitting at a table or, you know, in their, in their seats. 
And it just really, I think, breaks down some, some barriers right away between the speaker and the audience. And like I said, I think it makes everybody more comfortable. So how do you actually do that? Do you sort of greet them at the door? Do you just walk around and people like look at you and they're like, oh, that's that guy. And then you say, hey, how's it going? I mean, what, what are some of the practical things? Because I love the idea of meeting the audience, but what are some of the strategies behind that? Do you just go sit down at a table? Is it more of an organic, you're just kind of hanging out? Because I can feel that awkwardness of maybe people not knowing if they should approach you or how, what works for you? Yeah. So, so I would say that I fall short of like sitting at their table because that okay. feels a little bit like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> However, that's something that Ginger MC would do. He'd pop in and be like, Hey guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and that's when they say, excuse me, we're having a conversation here. Would you go away? <laughs> um, no, I think, I think, you know, you kind of look for your opportunities or the people who are sitting down, standing up, whether you're at the door, I, I would, Again, I don't try to put them in a situation where I'm standing at the door and they have to, I, I put them in a situation where they have to do something or say hello. I'll, I'll typically walk up. You get a feel for, you know, you may make eye contact with someone and just say hello and walk up. I'll introduce myself and, and find out about the people there and why they're here or, you know, what they hope to get out of it today, maybe. Um, sometimes it doesn't always get that involved. It just kind of depends, you know, on the people and, and what feels right in the moment in terms of how far to take the conversation. But even if it's just getting a few people's names and, and just creating a, some level of familiarity, like I said, I, I used to use it initially as something that just created a, a greater comfort level for me at the start. And then I really, you know, over time, you know, I, I, I use it and I think get a lot more from it, both in terms of Maybe I can incorporate some content from what, you know, I can say, hey, I talked to someone in the audience just two minutes ago about boom, you know, and here's right, the situation right. they talked about. And and it really connects you immediately and makes the other thing is your audience doesn't want to feel like you're giving the canned speech that you give a thousand times at every other conference. Right. I mean, right. it's got to feel like this is for them and it's specifically for them. So it could be the way the slides are done and opportunities to to note, you know, where you are and who you're with and and the fact that. What you've got here today was prepared, you know, very specially for them. And in most cases, well, basically for me, in all cases, they are. I mean, granted, there's a core of, of content, but it's it's wrapped and framed, you know, in a way that it, that is going to be very specific to what, you know, the needs of that audience are all about. So that's a great sort of reverse engineering concept, right? I mean, you're you're literally speaking with the audience members beforehand to build a rapport. But being able to incorporate that into your speech so they feel like it's something catered to them versus something that's just plucked off the shelf. Yeah, or even, you know, I think there are a lot of authors, for example, who, like, there's nothing, that, a pet peeve of mine is, is when, so an author writes a book, I read the book, I go to hear the author speak about the book. The last thing I want to hear is having the author go through and speak. Just read the book, right? <laughs> just to the book. Yeah, I, like, I read the book. Got it. You know what I mean? I, I want to hear like the other stuff, you know? And so I'm always really mindful of that. Like, how can I introduce things? I also think as another point, um, I've definitely found that the more I can reveal of myself, the more that I can be vulnerable in front of the audience, the better connection you create there. So although I don't, I don't always tell, you know, the, the story of the... <laughs> The, the baton, you know, dropping situation in my track because I hate to tell the story in many ways, but <laughs> but it's a story. To your point, it connects with people because if 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 they've never run track, it doesn't matter, 
but they'll think about a time uh, you know, where they've made a mistake and they've been like, oh no, right? And th- th- so there's that oh no moment on one hand, but yet I think there's also this opportunity whenever we do something like that and, and we do something bad, <laughs> inadvertent as it was, to say, well, how can I take that and actually learn from it and bring it into my life in a way that's positive? And that's the only good thing that came from that. I'd like to have that moment again back in a million years and have, you know, have won that race as we should have. But at the same time, yeah. uh, it definitely informed a way of thinking about communication that I may never have developed without having experienced that. And I think that it's empowering if you think of it that way, because you're really talking about authenticity and being vulnerable, but in a way that shares these lessons of failure, which humanizes you at the same time, back behind that is some sort of a, a lesson or a process. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no no doubt. Or, or anytime you can just, you know, have fun and be a bit, um, you know, self-deprecating. I, so every once in a while, you know, I, I do workshops for Vistage. And I was introduced one time as, you know, well, this is part of a secret speaker series where Vistage has world-class speakers come. And of course, you know, I started out with the audience and said, hey, you know, great to be here. I'm, I'm glad to be able to replace the world-class speaker you're supposed to have here today. And, and you know, and everyone has fun with that, right? They, they, they laugh right. and they, and it, again, it, it, it immediately just kind of cuts through and breaks down barriers that I'm not there to, pr- my job isn't to prove to you or anyone in that audience, uh, it's not about me, you know? Um, Tony Lowe, who I think is one of the best presentation trainers uh, in the world, told a story about when he was young and delivered a speech in South Africa. And so he delivers his speech. He comes down from the podium and a guy basically said to him, hey, kid, you know, nice speech. Don't be so selfish next time. And he immediately knew what he meant. And it said, and this is why a lot of speakers can get really nervous. They care more about their own performance. They didn't do about the value that they're supposed to be delivering to the audience. And if you care more about the audience, everybody wins. And I think it was a great lesson that Tony got early on. It's a story he told me that I've never forgotten. And every time I try to kind of take on that feeling that I'm being evaluated out there, I have to start remembering that the reason I'm here isn't because we're having a speaker contest, you know, and and that they're going to rank me in some way. I, I have to let go of all of that. And I have to make sure that I really care about the audience and the outcomes and all the things we've talked about earlier. And, and that's what makes for, I think, a winning you know, presentation, whether it's a keynote workshop or whatever. And what I love about these kinds of golden nuggets is that these are things that are conceptual that you can build, that anyone can build into. And it's, you know, I've got this face dancing theory where the concept is that there's two types of bad dancers, right? The bad dancer who has the good moves and trying to put the moves to the music. Then you have the bad dancer who's like a grandma on a wedding dance floor. And she's just like a terrible, like just hands down, terrible dancer, right? But there's something about her um, moving to the music, not caring about anybody, not caring about what she looks like. She's just having fun. And though, you know, it's magnetic and you want to go dance with grandma, even though she's a terrible dancer, yet the person on the dance floor who is trying to be good, they sort of isolate themselves and everyone creates a circle around them and people are like, eh, I'm not sure. So these tips that you're giving are things that anybody can take and incorporate no matter what their speaking level. So I'm going to recap. First of all, we have the Batari Baton Theory. 
<laughs> I think this is a good one. The Batari baton theory is making sure as a speaker, you do not let go of the baton, which is your core message or your concept, even throughout your talk until the audience has a handle on it. And I think we've all gone to give something to somebody and released it before it's actually been secured, whether it's a baton or not. Then you've got the Lincoln length theory, which is if you can say something in two minutes that takes somebody else two hours to do, you might be more memorable and or you can pack more information. Like think if you spent two hours giving two minute amazing chunks and nuggets of your best material, they're just going to assume that you have that much more. So don't hold back. Then you've got, uh, I'm going to call it the talk before your talk concept. Now let's stick with a theory, the talk before your talk theory. And it's that the more you talk with your audience before you talk, and the more tools you have to talk to them in a way that they think you're talking to them. Hashtag talk. <laughs> and then, you know, this whole being vulnerable, but I, I heard you say something that I combined, and I'm going to call it the bringing bad theory, right? Not breaking bad, because there's a weird halo with that, but bringing bad. Bring all of the bad stuff that's ever happened to you and use it in a way to connect with the audience, humanize yourself, be authentic, and be genuine. And then the uh, the selfish speaker syndrome. <laughs> there you go. Which is if you're feeling anxiety or you're stressed out, look at yourself because you're likely worried about whether or not you're sweating through your shirt, whether or not you're fumbling through your information, whether or not your slides look good. And that takes away from the core message, which is your ability to understand that your responsibility is that the people are grabbing the baton for you from you. Uh, you shouldn't care whether or not your, your shoes are untied at that point. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a whole book there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the speaking theory 101, which, uh, everyone can listen and learn from. So Leo, how do you monetize this? And I think that what I am curious about and what I've been trying to learn from you is getting into these workshop keynote opportunities with these like C-level executives that maybe there's a lost leader to get in front of them, but then you have a, an audience that actually has money maybe to pay. So if you were to go back in time and help yourself get to where you are faster or help someone like me or anyone else who's trying to monetize their information that they're spouting out through their mouth, what are some of the things that have worked and don't work or things to do or avoid? What do you think? So for me, I, I had a real advantage because once I left Vistage, and obviously because I talk about what matters to so many Vistage groups, um, you know, here in the U.S. And, and soon we'll be doing a bunch of things. I'll be doing a bunch of things internationally next year. It's to find a group that needs you for kind of more than one gig a year, right? So in other words, if you can get like I'm in a situation now with Vistage and they have group meetings all over the country. And, you know, I did 25 CEO workshops in the first five months or so of this year. And Whoa, wait a minute, 25, 25 in the first five months. That's burly. That's good. Yeah. That's a I lot. mean, and, yeah. and they were workshops for, they were three hour workshops that were done for CEOs, you know, key executives. And the idea was that it was, a, it was twofold. It was a self-assessment of their peer group, but it also gave them tools and actually gave them a presentation that they could take back to their companies where we could run the same exercise 
or they could run the same exercise with their teams to make them higher performing in their organizations. So again, we talked a little earlier about these five factors and the five factors that are so essential to a high performing peer group are also essential to high performing teams. And those five factors are having the right peers, having a safe and trusting environment, having valuable interaction, you know, so that people not only trust one another and work together well, but they're actually really productive. Fourth is that they're accountable to one another. And it's not just about being accountable to the boss. It's not, it's having the kind of team that would never, ever, ever, ever want to disappoint a colleague, you know, that you hold that trust and that and your currency with the rest of your team rests on your ability to do what you say you're going to do and do it really, really well. And then fifth, of course, is to have leadership of those team that essentially serves as a steward of the other four factors and offers the kind of servant leadership that is about making the team successful, not making the leader successful. And again, high-performing peer groups have to operate with that. And obviously, there's a lot within those five factors. But again, it's common to high-performing teams as well. And in the workshops, I talk about high-performing teams at like Mullen Lowe, that advertising agency I mentioned earlier that I used to work for. And we also mm-hmm. talk actually quite a bit about the University of Connecticut women's basketball team that, you know, had 111 consecutive victories last year, had, you know, more than um, margin of victory, more than 40 points a game. You look at a team that even though they have a Hall of Fame coach and they have can group, recruit great players, you know, so can Notre Dame, Stanford and a whole host of other schools. Why are they that much better than everyone else? And in many respects, of course, they have a lot of things, you know, going for them, certainly, but. I would argue that among them, that their peer-to-peer culture is really like nothing you've ever seen. As, as tough as the coach is on the players, the players have high, high, high expectations of one another, that they're there to get better each and every day, and they set their own standard of excellence, which is why just being a little better than the next team is not what they're about. That's why they win the way they do. So what I'm hearing is that you've taken this opportunity to get in front of a group that meets on a regular basis, but more so you're looking at what kind of baton this group wants. And then you've not only empowered them from the workshop component, but you're giving them crazy tools for them to then take back and them to empower others with your information. So, you know, the value of what you're creating is not just a a song and dance workshop of three hours you were addressing a core need of that audience and not just for that three hours, but you're giving them tools that then they can take back and have a multiplier effect on the information that you've given them. And I'm assuming that the feedback and the value that that provides to that group goes back up the chain and they're like, that was amazing. So Vistage calls you back and they're like, we need you to do it again at 25 more times in the next five months. So is that value that you bring the ability for it to extend beyond your workshop, a big part of why you're able to be paid for that? It is. And it's also when we talk about the power of peers. So when I do a, a workshop for Vistage Group and a chair loves it, members love it, what does he do? He tells all the other chairs and says, you've got to get this guy and come and speak to your group. So <laughs> when, when you've got you know, that many Vistage Group meetings happening, that is one really great source you know, of, of not only a revenue, but ongoing learning for me all the time. And there isn't any time I ever do a workshop like that where I'm with a group of CEOs or key executives or small business owners, entrepreneurs, where I don't walk away with some little nugget of something that I didn't know before I, I walked in. So it, right. it's a real win-win in that way also. 
The other source that has really been fascinating of, of speakers for me is because, as I mentioned, I've been an adjunct professor for about a decade now, and many of my students were mid to senior level executives. And now they know kind of what I'm doing. They're like, hey, can you come speak at our conference? It's like, great. <laughs> you know, so that's been, you know, a fascinating um, thing. With a lot of the writing I've had to do this year, and especially with work on the book now, the, the thing that I, I need to do more of, though, is really dedicate myself to, you know, looking at other uh, speaking opportunities more proactively than the things that, you know, I've, I've gotten so far. I mean, certainly it's been a good year this year, and I've been very happy with that. But I also really want to extend the reach of this because I see the power of these workshops. I, I've had CEOs who have said, I did your workshop with my group the other day. I did it with my team the very next day. And like, it was like kaboom, you know, because what starts to happen is the team starts to realize that their happiness and their success isn't something that they have to look to the leader for. They look to one another for it. And once they realize that they have the power to make themselves happier and, and can make more money and be more successful and all that, it makes all the difference in the world. And this is where this peer-to-peer culture among teams uh, starts to be very, very powerful. And when I have CEOs come back and say, yes, this was really helpful for our group, but boy, what, you know, when I started getting these conversations going among our people about what does it take to be successful here? How do we build trust? You know, how do we do the kinds of things that, you know, the five factor speaks to? It's been super powerful and, you know, people have really enjoyed it. And, you know, it's gratifying when you see the kind of, and you pointed this out, like the extension of that. It's not even just for the people in the room. The point is to really make sure that the reach of that content is extended and that people get value from it, you know, beyond that one workshop and that one day. Yeah, I love this idea of putting on a workshop, but giving the audience a workshop to do on their own. And that that creates this long lasting long tail of of them remembering you, them have a higher chance of, like you said, somebody does your workshop. And the next day, a CEO says, I ran this workshop with my team the next day, as opposed to if you just did the workshop, and you didn't give them any sort of action with resources afterwards. I think that's a key part of of why they keep wanting you back. Now to something that you said, which is you personally need to start being more proactive. Tell me what your thought process is. And if you had no time commitment to the writing the book, and you had all of this time dedicated to being proactive on finding more speaking gigs, what are some of the things that you would do so that selfishly we can all look and copy and uh, in the nicest way, copy sort of draft on what you would do knowing what you know? Yeah. so for other speakers I've talked to about this, uh, many of them just flat out say, find yourself someone who works in this space, who can book speaking engagements for you and have someone you trust who understands the, the content well, knows you, knows what the needs uh, of these groups are, knows the lead times, knows all everything about what to submit to these um, you know particular conferences and all. And you know, getting some help doing it, I think, is really important because there's a lot of things that I can be working on that speak, I think, again, to the substance of it all and to the audience and and trying to constantly improve the presentation as opposed to trying to dedicate, you know, tens of hours every single week to trying to get on the phone or or emails or whatever and be knocking out 
you know, proposals when I can, you know, when someone said basically, you know, if, if you are doing the work of an assistant, you are an assistant, you know, I mean, uh, and, that's, and, I like, that's, that's a very key point, right? Because you want to get out there and hustle and, you know, go uh, track down conferences and get your applications in and find the call for speakers. But if you do the job of an assistant, you essentially are the assistant and it lowers your status. So having, well, and, I and I don't even want to, and, and I almost don't even want to frame it that way because, okay. Uh, the, Cause that assistant will do it. Not only will they do it and free me up to do other things, they'll do that better than I could do it anyway. <laughs> so, right. I, so I, okay. I, I try to even think about it that more as a, as, as a real partnership than, than something that's, that's below. It's just a question of how do I go about spending my time in the way that is going to be most valuable for, for really everyone, you know, overall. You know, when we speak about pieces of advice too, Louis Schiff, who was um, founder of the Business Owners Council, I think made a great point. And I think this is really helpful for speakers or for anyone doing anything where he basically said, you know, so many people follow their passion. They feel like the money will follow. He said, what you do is follow your passion, but then follow the money. And I think it was really brilliant because the idea, of course, is that find out who are the people that want to pay for what you love to do and focus your energy on time on those particular groups or audiences or organizations, whomever it happens to be. And you've talked about this many times in terms of your have some real focus, right? The more that we try to be all things to everyone, the more that we're going to mean nothing to anyone. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, exactly. So. I think there's an aspect of that too. That um, when when we imagined how do we you know grow our speaking practice, for example, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, I was. There's a, an amazing documentary I was just turned on to. It's a four or five part series called The Defiant Ones, and it basically tracks Jimmy Levine and Dr. Dre on their two different paths and all the, the basically the history of hip hop and, and Interscope Records and everything. And there's this one really powerful moment where he just talks about. Do you know the reason why horses have blinders on? It's because if you look to the left or right, you're going to miss a step. And then it shows this crazy horse race crash. And it's like, it just left this image with me. So mm. I think the idea of being focused, people will then think of you and you'll come top of mind on that topic versus uh, one of many topics that you try to say you speak on. And you're a perfect example. You're so niched into the peer-to-peer -peer space uh, the peer group space, I mean, and you've even written a book on it. You've got a second book coming out. If someone were to want someone to speak to a peer group, you're going to come top to mind. And I think that that's a huge piece of, uh, of the puzzle really. So this is good. I'm motivated. I'm going to, I'm going to get my assistant to get out there and do a better job than I can of wrangling up some opportunities. I'm going to leverage the people that I have to see if I can get into some of these little CEO groups so that it has an extended version I am forever traumatized watching Olympics from now on, thinking about the <laughs> baton theory. Um, but I think all this is great stuff. And again, it was a pleasure having you today. Any final thoughts, kind of closing comments to inspire people who are inspired to become part of this world of speakers traveling around the world or locally sharing what they have with everyone? Any thoughts of wisdom or final pieces of advice? So... I would say to the extent that you can get your audience involved in your talk, sometimes even physically involved in your talk, and if you can be fearless about doing it, you'd be surprised what you can do. 
So I'll, very quickly, and I won't get into the explanation of it so much as in these CEO workshops I do, we do an exercise where I have them thumb wrestle each other. And if you can imagine <laughs> what that's like, right? So you think, you think, oh, right, these CEOs are going to get thumb wrestle. They turn into eight-year-olds faster than you can possibly imagine. And, and it's the funnest part of the thing. And yet when they realize the larger point that's made of the thumb wrestling exercise and what they get and how, what I basically say is that they should deliver this and, and get their teams to do it. And I said, in the spirit of the fact that you would never ask your team something you wouldn't do yourself, get up. And everyone gets up and they do the thumb wrestling and it's a ball. It's the funnest part <laughs> of the whole thing. And yet, you know, it might be something you'd be hesitant to do because it's like, really, right. they're going to they're going to like laugh me out of their room. Oh, no, way into it. Way fun. So don't be afraid to, um, you know, get them involved and have a little fun uh, at the same time. And um, excellent, you know, excellent. Really great benefit from it. And if somebody wants to connect with you online, what's your favorite platform for them to do so? Well, certainly, you know, my website, my LinkedIn profile, I always invite people to uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I always enjoy, you know, meeting new people and learning from them on LinkedIn. And, um, you know, I think those two, I mean, I'm, I certainly am active on Facebook and Twitter as well. But um, I think if um, people can connect at leobatari.com uh, or look for me on, on LinkedIn, that would be great. We'd love to connect. Awesome. We'll put all that stuff in the show notes. Leo, it's been a pleasure and hopefully we'll see each other soon, whether it's in Portugal or a CEO group or around the world somewhere, somehow to, uh, I will challenge you officially to a thumb wrestling match. Awesome. Look forward to it. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Leo. This is Ryan Folland and you were listening to the world of speakers where we help you learn the tools and tricks to become a world-class speaker. If you want to find more podcasts, it's easy. Go to worldofspeakers.com. All right, this is the Ginger MC, and I am signing out. Goodbye.